Recall in chapter 6 that uh, there was this great uh, internal strife in the church in Jerusalem amongst the Jewish, uh, that, that first Jewish church. Uh, there were very uh, many widows. Some of them were Greek cultured. Some of them were uh, Jewish, uh, Hebrew cultured. Uh, some spoke Greek. Some spoke uh, Aramaic. Uh, and so same uh, background, but yet different culture. Uh, and these uh, uh, Greek or Hellenistic uh, widows felt neglected. And so the church raised up amongst itself seven men full of the spirit. We call them the deacons. Uh, and so in chapters six, uh, six and then seven, we've seen one of them, Stephen, going out and preaching. Uh, and we're also going to hear this morning now uh, of another of those seven named Philip. Uh, the gospel spreads. The gospel continues to spread here in chapter 8 throughout uh, the region now into Samaria. So chapter 8, uh, after Stephen was stoned to death, Saul approved his, uh, of his execution. Uh, the second part of verse 1 says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the words. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, the Messiah. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God. That is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news, the gospel, about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Notice that they were amazed by him. Now he's amazed. Now when the, the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. They sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian 
a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the, uh, of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? He, the Ethiopian, said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, and it's from the prophecy of Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask, does the, spirit, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news, the gospel about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And all of God's people say, Amen. <clears throat> Well, I was telling the elders uh, this week, we were texting about something, and I said, uh, I said to them, uh, you know, we, we preach best what we need to hear most uh, as preachers, and uh, on the other side of me, the speaker, and you, the hearer, uh, we receive most what we need to hear most. Uh, we, we preach best what we need to hear most, and we receive best uh, what we need ourselves to hear and receive, which is the gospel. This morning we read a long passage here in Acts chapter 8, and I want us to meditate just upon the wonder of the gospel. Uh, we need to hear the gospel, we need to know the gospel, we need to know who Jesus is and why he's so important and what he means for us and how uh, all that he did is ours by faith. We need to meditate upon the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It's the gospel we see here in our passage, in fact, that, that cheers, that cheers the church. Uh, it's the gospel that brings great wonder and awe and joy to the hearts of sinners. Uh, and so it's not meditating here this morning upon uh, high and heavenly matters like predestination, uh, issues of Christ and his atonement for whom he died, uh, eschatological views and so forth. I was uh, asked by a friend yesterday to, uh, to send me a message, a sermon, anything I might have. Uh, on various views of eschatology, uh, and as we were driving uh, yesterday uh, up to Orange County to see my mom, uh, I was holding the phone up to my ear uh, in the car because I thought I remembered a message many years ago on these things, and uh, even in that sermon I said, you know, there's lots of views. What really matters is the gospel. So I sent it off to my friend, and I said, you know, I don't have a message about all the views. Uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ is what matters most. So we're not here to meditate this morning upon predestination. Uh, the atonement of Christ and the extent of it, the views of the millennium, 
uh, whether or not national Israel is still God's covenant people or any other kinds of issues and topics and things that are curious to us and interesting to us, things that we'd like to talk about and debate amongst ourselves as brothers and sisters, but we're here to meditate upon the gospel, the simple, saving, good news of Jesus. And so from time to time we need to, we hear that every Sunday of course, but from time to time we need to very explicitly meditate upon the gospel uh, and be brought back to just the gospel, what it is, what it does, how it saves, how it helps us. Just like kids are always brought back to those most basic of toys, like building blocks or Legos or their bike, their scooter, their skateboard, the most basic things, not their iPhones, not their iPads, not their games, not those things, but the most basic things. And so just like a child is brought back to the most basic of toys, even in older uh, age, uh, the same way we need to be brought back to the simplest, the simplicity of the gospel, like a small little building block this morning. And so we see that here uh, in Acts chapter 8. We're just going to think with you about uh, the wonder of the gospel, and we see the vocabulary of it. Uh, the wonder of its vocabulary is described here. The wonder of its promiscuity, we'll come to that little word that, uh, that uh, hopefully perks up our little ears. Uh, and then also the wonder of its inclusivity. The wonder of its vocabulary, promiscuity, and inclusivity. So notice here, first of all, uh, as we just look at some passages here and some verses here and some words here in chapter 8, the wonder of the vocabulary of the gospel. Now, those of you who are old enough, like me, to remember uh, taking home from school uh, lined, ruled paper... You recall those days, those of us who were old enough, we would get a little piece of paper uh, or a couple pieces from our teacher, uh, not, not very bright white paper, but sort of that, that kind of brownish, grayish, faded looking, uh, pulpy kind of paper, pulp kind of paper, uh, very cheap. But it had nice little lines on it for, you to, for us to write out our alphabet, write out our letters, uh, write out our vocabulary words. We'd have to mark them off the chalkboard back in the day and write them down on that little piece of paper and take them home. And teacher would say, you know, ask your mom or dad or, or find a dictionary. You know, we couldn't Google things back then. We'd actually have a dictionary at home. If you didn't have one, you went to the school library, got a dictionary. You know, what do these words mean? Uh, what does the word wonder mean? Uh, what does the word promiscuity mean? What is inclusivity? We'd look it up and we'd write a little short sentence definition out, bring it back to school the next day, hopefully you get a smiley face or a sticker uh, on your piece of paper. We had to do that to remind us of basic vocabulary, to teach us basic vocabulary. The same thing here. I want us to stand in awe of the ways in which Scripture tells us this morning that the gospel is wonderful. Notice how it's expressed here. Notice the, vo- the, the terms, the vocabulary words, the definitions, as it were, of how the gospel is expressed. Uh, there are three words here for the gospel. First of all, we read of the language of testifying of the gospel. Uh, we read there, verse 25, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord. Notice, it's not just a mere testimony, not just speaking. You probably heard about this revival at uh, Asbury College. Uh, And uh, as as you watch reports of it or hear reports of it, a lot of people are asking and wondering about it. And uh, one of the things that people are saying, students are saying is, you know, well, such and such, you know, they're giving testimonies about, you know, whatever in their life they're struggling with or confessing their sins publicly and so forth. And all these things are good. But the language of testifying and giving testimony in Scripture in the New Testament, it's not about yourself. 
That's how we Americans think of testimonies or testifying. It's about ourselves. You know, what has God done for me? Uh, what have I done that I need this particular God to help me with? No, it's they testified and they had spoken what? Verse 25. They had testified and spoken what? What does verse 25 say? The word of the Lord. Notice. The good news, the gospel, is something that has been told to us, has been testified to us, spoken to us, and therefore that we must speak as well. Our own personal story is important, but notice it's the testimony of the gospel. What has God done? in Jesus Christ. He's the gospel, not ourselves. And how God has changed us, that itself isn't also the gospel. The gospel is what Christ has done. Now they had testified, verse 25, and spoken the word of the Lord. And so this language of testifying, pointing and and heralding and speaking forth the wonders and the acts of God in Jesus Christ. Secondly, there's a language in our passage here of heralding or proclaiming far and wide the gospel, the good news. Notice again, verse 5, where we are told that Philip heralded to them, that is the Samaritans, he heralded to them the Messiah, the Christ. He proclaimed, he preached, he spread far and wide the gospel of Jesus as Messiah. In pictorial terms, this is what we read about a couple of Sundays ago in Matthew 13, where Jesus gives us uh, that beautiful parable of the sower. Recall that parable? The parable of the sower, meaning that the man who has seeds, a farmer, as it were, we would say today, uh, and he's going to take those seeds and he's going to spread them across his field. And Jesus said that when preachers preach, it's like being a sower spreading seeds Far and wide, that's what it is to herald. It's to announce, it is to proclaim, it's to send seed all across a large field. And of course, the the parable says some seeds fall on some kinds of soil and other seeds fall on other kinds of soil and so forth. And we we learn about those kinds of seeds and the kinds of, uh, the, the seed is the word of God, the various kinds of soils, the various kinds of hearers. And so forth. So to herald, though, is to be like a seed thrower, casting our seeds across a field. We might, for those of us with a front yard or a backyard, we might just think of it, you know, every, every spring as, uh, you know, if you're visiting this morning, we're really cold here, if you didn't notice that. We're really cold this morning. Uh, this, is, this is freezing for us. Uh, and, and the ground on our lawns are hard right now. Not as hard as they would be if they're frozen, but for us, really hard. Uh, and so as things begin to, quote-unquote, thaw out here uh, in the spring, which usually means February, uh, we, we might take some, some, some seeds. We might take some fertilizer because, you know, our, our lawns have kind of yellowed or browned or whatever in the, in the wintertime. So we throw out, we cast out uh, our seeds, our, our fertilizer to get it across all that ground. And of course, some seeds hit, some fertilizer doesn't, and so forth. And as the weather heats up and we turn our sprinklers back on and so forth, uh, we'll see some nice green, but then you might have some patches that need some more work. And so the same way, the, the seed of the word is cast upon the ground. It's heralded across many peoples. Third, third, 
There's a language here of announcing. It's the language of preaching. That's the Greek word, this verb here. Announcing or, or preaching. Uh, it's used twice in terms of the action of bringing good news to various places. Peter and John, verse 25, announced, preached, literally, to many villages of the Samaritans. And again, Philip, verse number 20, uh, verse 40, excuse me, verse 40, he announced or preached in Azotus and to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So in those two verses, 25 and 40, uh, it's the action of bringing good news to these places, whether the Samaritans, or whether Azotus, or whether all the way up the coast to Caesarea. But then also in our, in our chapter here, three times this verb of announcing or, or preaching is used <clears throat> in terms of the good news itself. So on the one hand, it could be the action of preaching. On the other hand, it could be the contents, the stuff that's preached. Notice in verse 4, where it says to us, uh, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. That's the ESV. Preaching the word. Notice the content of that preaching is the gospel, the word of God. Of course, preaching is using words, but the gospel is a specific word. The gospel is a specific word of good news, of good news. So you see that in verse 12, announcing or again, preaching what? The kingdom of God. And the name of Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Messiah. He's the content. The kingdom of God, in a broad sense, and Christ, Jesus, in a narrow sense, is the content of biblical preaching. God's heavenly rule and reign has come down in the person of Jesus, and he, therefore, is whom we proclaim as king, and his kingdom has come. And we see this in a third way when we read of announcing and preaching, that is verse 35. Announcing and preaching about Jesus. See that in verse 35? Announcing or preaching about Jesus. You know, the good news about Jesus. So what's the wonder of the gospel? What's the wonderful thing that makes preaching and heralding and testifying and announcing and speaking and spreading the gospel far and wide. What's the wonderful thing that makes it what it is? Jesus, verse 35. Jesus. As one song says, one of our hymns, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. Another song says, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. You might know that song. Master, Savior, Jesus, like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, 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 let all heaven and earth proclaim. Kings and kingdoms shall all pass away. But there's something about that name. You might know that song. It's an older little gospel song. Maybe, maybe we'll sing it uh, some Sunday. But Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. And that's why the gospel's wonderful. It's not about us. It's not about anything other than Jesus. He's the gospel. He's the content. He's the one that we believe in, the one that we've heard, the one that we are to share and speak of. Now, secondly, we see here something a little more specific. We see the wonder then of the gospel in terms of its promiscuity. Its promiscuity. Now, kids, 
as you get older, your parents are going to talk to you about, uh, about things, and uh, sometimes you're, you're going to hear that word promiscuous. And we will talk to you about how promiscuity or being promiscuous, it's not a good thing, the way that we are speaking of that way. But when we talk about the gospel, when we speak of the gospel, though, being promiscuous is a good thing. Is a good thing. How? We've been reading so far in Acts up to this point of several waves of persecution upon the church in Jerusalem. And here uh, Luke uses a word uh, in this chapter that, that speaks of destroying the church. Destroying the church, ravaging the church, uh, trying to destroy it. Uh, it, It's a word that speaks of brutal and sadistic cruelty in ancient uh, uh, Greco-Roman use. But but as we read of these persecutions and this destruction, this brutality that's brought about upon the church, uh, we've been seeing and we've been standing in awe and wondering how God, in fact, in his own wisdom, in his own purpose is using evil and turning it to good. We saw that in Genesis chapter 50 with the story of Joseph. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. We hear that in the Apostle Paul where where he says to us in in Romans chapter 8 that God turns evil to our good. God turns evil to our good. God is God and he's able to do so in his own wisdom, in his own power, and so forth. But you, we see here the wisdom of how Saul, this who's going to become Paul as we know him, Saul, this great rabbi, and the Jerusalem council have been constantly persecuting the church. Don't speak in Jesus' name. You can't preach in public. You can't come to the temple and talk about Jesus, and so forth. And then when they can't reason with them, they resort to threats and actual violence, beating them imprisoning them, dragging them, as Saul does here, from house to house into prison. But God in his wisdom, when the church is pressed hard upon in Jerusalem, it actually causes the church to scatter. It causes the gospel to spread. The more the world, and we see this in history, the more the world power seeks to suppress and oppress, and muzzle, and snuff out, and stamp down, and grind down into the dust uh, of history, the church, what happens? The more it spreads. The more it spreads. Why do you think when you see construction sites, we have one just down the street from our house, huge excavators are digging up huge plots of dirt, and there's always a, a gigantic water tower there. Do you notice that? That's, I think it's a California thing. We have all these rules and regulations about how to build. And so they're digging huge plots of dirt. And what happens when you, when you dig up the dirt? You're trying to remove the dirt. You're going to haul it away. But what happens when you dig up dirt? Dust. So in California, we have these big, huge water tankers. And we, sometimes they have a hose or a truck. And they try to spread to suppress to suppress the dust so it doesn't go into the people's uh, houses next door. The more the world tries to dig up the church and throw the church away like dirt, 
it spreads. You can, and you can't hold it down. You can't hold it down. And the wonder of the gospel, uh, the promiscuity of the gospel, is that the world seeks to persecute the church, but that's the exact means that God uses to make his word spread or be promiscuous. Outside the boundaries of just the capital city of Jerusalem, then there's that region of Judea, which is a Roman province, but the ancient region of Judea. And just north of that is the next region, the next area of Samaria. And then you have the ends of the earth. So we're in Acts in chapter 1, verse number 8. Remember, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, there's sort of a table of contents of the entire book where Jesus told his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, it's the first place. In all Judea, the second place. And Samaria, the third place. And the ends of the earth. He didn't tell them how that was going to happen, but now we see but now we see how Christ commissions his apostles to go and to spread the seed promiscuously to all peoples, all tribes, all languages, all cultures. But the way that that happens is persecution. Persecution leads to evangelism. And notice that when the whole church is persecuted in Jerusalem, and when it's authorized preachers, notice it's the apostles we read there, It's the apostles who are locked up or shut up in Jerusalem. When that happens, how does the gospel go out if there are no apostles going out? If the apostles can't leave Jerusalem to go preach in Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, how is God going to spread his word? What does verse 1 and verse 2 say? Who goes out? There's a great persecution. The church in Jerusalem, notice, except the apostles go out. Who goes out then? Everybody else. Men like Philip, right? Not the apostles. So even when the world is seeking to persecute the leadership of the church, those whom Christ had appointed himself to go and to preach the gospel, and when they were held up and shut into Jerusalem, the gospel still spreads. Notice that. You can't hold the plan of God down. When the authorized preachers are bound up in Jerusalem, God still gets his word out through unofficial preachers, through non-apostles, through believers, in other words, who go out and joyfully spread the word to the world. Now those who scattered went about preaching the word, verse 4, notice. Kids, think of it like a dandelion. Like a big, puffy dandelion. Yesterday I had a big puff ball in my front yard and I grabbed hold of it and like, like, a, like a dad likes to do, blow and watch the seeds get spread. It looks like it's being destroyed, doesn't it? I mean, it looks so nice and so fluffy. And you want to keep it in that state, don't you? You pick it, you maybe pick a couple of them, you start seeing some of the seeds fall off. You're like, no, the seeds, don't leave. It looks just, it, it, it just looks so fun. You blow on it, and all of a sudden the seeds scatter, and all you have left is a stem, and that's about it. It looks like it's being destroyed. But in reality, when you 
destroy a dandelion by blowing its seeds, what happens? The seeds spread, and those seeds land, and what happens to those seeds? There are weeds, of course, and we don't like weeds, but it causes more dandelions to, to spread and to pop up. The gospel is spread like seeds by the winds of persecution. As one commentator said, the wind increases the flame of the gospel. The persecution of the church only increases the flame of the gospel. Now, we might not see that here, but just think in modern world history. In 1949, when communism took over China, foreign missionaries were expelled. And many of those missionaries who were expelled from China, where do you think they went? They went to other countries in Southeast Asia. Into parts of Asia that hadn't received yet the gospel. Didn't have the word of God translated yet. And of course, over time, in fact, the number of Christians now, as we look back and think about uh, 70 plus years later, the amount of Christians in China increasing exponentially to the point now where we can probably see in our own lifetime Chinese Christians, authentic Chinese Christians coming to our country to evangelize us because there are more Christians in those churches than even here. So the gospel is a wonderful thing and we see its vocabulary here. We see also its promiscuity and uh, ironically or we might, we might think uh, counterintuitively to our human wisdom, the way that the gospel is promiscuously spread is through the harshness of persecution. But yet what people mean for evil, God means for good. And finally, the wonder of its inclusivity. The wonder of its inclusivity. So after this persecution, we read about of a gospel comes to the Samaritans. Notice that, verses 4 to 25. The gospel comes to the Samaritans, verses 4 to 25. So remember Acts 1, verse 8. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, capital city. Judea, that region in which Jerusalem was capital city. Samaria, that's the next region just north. All the earth. So finally, the gospel is now penetrating into the land of the Samaritans. Now, Jesus had gone here, of course, to lay the groundwork. But now the gospel is going in all of its power, in all of its Holy Spirit power to the Samaritans, verses 4 to 25. And then it comes to an Ethiopian eunuch in verses 26 to 40, which is going to be a little foretaste. So uh, those of us who, uh, like, our, my, like my boys uh, in high school, uh, as they're in English class, they're learning all kinds of literary devices. One of them is foreshadowing, foreshadowing. So the gospel mission to the Gentiles doesn't officially start until chapter number 10 with Cornelius. That's where we see then uh, Saul going out with Barnabas to, across the world to his missionary journey. But at the end of chapter 8, verses 26 to the end, there's this little insertion of the story of this Ethiopian, a Gentile. And he believes the gospel. It's a foreshadow of what's going to come, so just keep that in mind. So Acts 1, verse 8 is now, we're seeing now the fulfillment of Jesus' very own words, his very own promise. The gospel has come to Jerusalem, Judea, now Samaria, and eventually it's going to come to all the world. So verses 4 to 25, the gospel includes now Samaritans. Well, who are they? I mentioned before that uh, in ancient Israel, there were 10 northern tribes, that northern part of, of ancient Israel, that they had turned from the Lord. 
and they made the city of Samaria their capital city. Later on in 722, the, the, final, uh, uh, the final time, the Assyrians had invaded and taken them captive into their empire, 722 BC. Now, the Assyrians did something interesting amongst the people of God, and uh, from my own reading, I take it that this was a strategy of theirs as they would uh, invade and conquer other people groups and other lands and other regions, other ethnic peoples, that they would not only, that, that they wouldn't take everybody captive. So they would come to the northern kingdom of Israel and they would take a lot of them captive back to their kingdom of slaves. And people like Daniel and so forth, later on in Babylonia, the upper crust who could work in various uh, industries and so forth. But they, so they would leave the poorest of the poor in the homeland, and they would take people from another kingdom that they had conquered, and they would send them to the other kingdom, into the northern kingdom, to intermarry, to try to intermarry, intermingle them, mix up their cultures, and breed them out of existence. That's what happened in Samaria. There was an invasion, there was a deportation, but then there was a leaving behind of some, and the sending of others from other kingdoms into that region of so that city of Samaria and that region of Israel called Samaria by the time of Jesus and the apostles. And the result was what? The result was sort of half Jew, half everything else, right? Sort of like Americans, right? We're a bunch of mutts. We're just a bunch of mix of everything. You see that in Ezra 4, Nehemiah 4. Now, when Judah later on returned from its Babylonian captivity, that's in 586, and they come back uh, after that, the Samaritans then come down south and offered to help the Judeans rebuild the temple. But what did the Judeans say to the Samaritans? You know the Old Testament, don't you? What did they say to the Samaritans? Did the Samaritans come down and help rebuild the temple in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah? Nobody knows their Bible today. Sunday school time, everybody. No way, no how. You're going to help us build our temple. Your dirty, filthy hands, right? Touching our holy temple. Touching even just the bricks to build our temple. No way. Now, what happened then? What happened was what we read about in John chapter 4, where Jesus goes to a well and sees a Samaritan woman there. And uh, eventually there, uh, because the Judeans refused to help the Samaritans, these half-breeds, what happened was they built their own temple. And so there was a rival temple on Mount Gerizim in the 4th century B.C. Uh, and later on, in the year 200 B.C., they dedicated that temple to Zeus. Jesus shows up on the scene, and there's this Samaritan woman and says, well, we worship on our mountain, you've got your mountain, right? That's because of what happens. So not only were they in, uh, intermarried and sort of half-bred and but they were ostracized. They had their own culture, their own temple, their own places to worship. And so it's just a mess. There's strife. There's ethnic strife, religious strife between these groups. The Jews saw the Samaritans as unclean, as outsiders. Again, so much so that we read in Luke chapter 9 that when Jesus, on his own ministry to the Samaritan people, the apostle whom Jesus loved, John, Wanted to call down something out of heaven upon the Samaritans. You know what he wanted to call down? Fire. That's how the Jews thought of the Samaritans. That's the hostility that existed between Jews and Samaritans. But now we read this 
in verse 5, that he went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Messiah. The wondrous announcement and inclusion now of outside unclean Samaritans into God's kingdom. But then there's that weird weird verse 16 that you probably have to be asking yourself, what does that mean? The Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them. Especially since Peter promised the Spirit to all who repented and believed back in chapter 2. Quickly, just very quickly. The Roman Catholic Church says that this is a a proof of what they call a two-stage experience of the Christian life. That you are baptized first, and then later on you are confirmed the laying on of hands by the bishop, and then the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Baptized first, Holy Spirit comes later. That's the same view that many of us who have come out of Pentecostalism uh, in our own way had that two-stage experience of the Christian life. First, there's your conversion and your baptism, and then second to that, subsequent to that, there was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Many of us know what that means. Now, in response to that kind of a two-age experience, paradigm there, many commentators say that there's only one stage and argue that the Samaritan's conversion was not genuine. And that's why the apostles came. So that's how they, they kind of answer it that way, by saying, well, it wasn't a real conversion. Only, apostles, only the apostles brought real conversion. Others say that it was a genuine conversion, but that what they received of the apostles was some extraordinary manifestation, manifestation of the Holy Spirit. That's what John Calvin says, and I, I think that's the best way uh, to, to explain it. In other words, there's not a formulaic pattern of the Christian life. Rome says it's formulaic. You're baptized, you're regenerated as a baby. Later on, you have the, the, the bishop lay hands upon you, he breathes upon you, you receive the Holy Spirit, and so forth. Pentecostalism, similarly, uh, you're converted, you have your conversion experience, you're born again, you're baptized, and at some point, it could be quick after that, it could be later on, we don't know. At some point, hands are laid upon you, you're prayed over, you speak in tongues, uh, and you now you've received the Holy Spirit. Instead of this being a formulaic pattern of how things ought to be, we should take, a, take it for what it is. It's an unusual experience. On the basis on the, based on the fact that the gospel has now been spread to a new area, and the apostolic representation comes, sort of a delegation, to confirm this. The gospel has come to Jerusalem and Judea, and now it's breaking into the Samaritan region, and to testify of that, and to bear witness to that, and to give uh, its, its, its imprimatur that this is genuine, the apostles go. And there is this strange, extraordinary exp- uh, experience that they received the Holy Spirit as a witness, as a testimony, as a sign that the gospel has truly come and has included now Samaritans. We see this throughout uh, the book of Acts. We see this phenomenon of the apostles uh, laying hands and praying and the Holy Spirit comes. We saw it in Jerusalem, chapter 2. We see it in Judea and Samaria, chapter 8. We'll see it in the ends of the earth, chapters 10 and 11. It's unusual. It's unusual. It's not a pattern for the ongoing blessing of the Holy Spirit, uh, again, because it deviates from what Peter has already preached in Acts 2.38, that all who believe receive the Holy Spirit. It's unusual. We don't read about this experience happening every time, and in this exact way, uh, every time converts are made. It's unusual because while Peter is present in each of the moments in Acts 2 uh, and in chapter 10, we'll see, 
the Spirit falls without prayer and the laying out of hands, but with the speaking of tongues. So there are times where the Spirit comes without the laying out of hands. Here in Acts 8, the Spirit falls with prayer and the laying out of hands, but there are no tongues mentioned. Again, it's meant to show us that there, are, there is this, number one, there is this extraordinary experience that's happening. Uh, number two, it's a way to demonstrate that the Samaritans are one with the rest of the body of Christ. There are no ethnic racial barriers when it comes to the gospel. The Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit just like the Jews in Judea and on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. So the Samaritans are now included, and we see this Ethiopian who's a foretaste, a, a foreshadowing of the wholeness of the Gentile mission. Now the Psalms describe a day to come in which Ethiopia would stretch out its hand to the Lord. And when the Lord would name Ethiopia in the temple, that's Psalm 87. That's significant because this man is a Gentile. But he's also a eunuch, we're told here. The Old Testament law said something about eunuchs. They could not enter the assembly of God's people. They could not offer sacrifices. They were unclean. They were ritually impure. Yet the prophet Isaiah spoke of a day to come in which eunuchs would be given an everlasting name. The prophet Zephaniah foresaw a day in which Ethiopians would bring offerings to the temple. Eunuchs, like Samaritans, were considered on the fringes of Israelite society. But what do we see here? What do we see here? We see the church ministering to them. We see the church ministering to them. Those on the fringes. Eunuchs, Samaritans, unclean, ritually unclean, physically, whatever it might be. Unclean, different, distinct, not worthy, unable. But the church here ministers. Take it to heart that we need to reach out to the hurting, the lost, the needy. And so persecution comes. The gospel spreads. Persecution comes. The gospel spreads. And it spreads in various and many wonderful ways in descriptive terms. It comes and, it incl- and, and it's uh, 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 expressed Uh, in a promiscuous way to any who would hear, to all people groups. And when the gospel comes, ethnic, religious differences are not just highlighted here, but the gospel includes those differences. It includes the outcast. It includes the unclean. It includes the outsider. It includes those on the fringes of society. And so here's the wonder of the power of the gospel that is proclaimed and preached and we witnessed and we testify to and we spread promiscuously to everyone and we know that God is going to do his work of including in his kingdom, in the name of Jesus, all who would hear, all who have ears to hear, let them hear. The gospel is wonderful. The gospel is wonderful. It saves sinners of all kinds, of all stripes, of all persuasions, of all people. It saves sinners. Sinners, And as we hear these wonderful stories this morning, as we delve into them even more so in the weeks and months to come, always come back to the wonder of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless the reading and hearing of your word today. 
and fill our hearts, Lord, with joy in the good news of Jesus to save us and to save the farthest on the fringe sinner. Use us, Lord, to spread the word, to spread the seed, even as the ancient church, as it was persecuted, and even its leadership was unable to go out, yet the church went and the gospel was spread. And your power, Lord, cannot be thwarted because you are king. We ask it all in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.